This is literally everything, 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 everything. If you're like me, you have a pile of books older than your grandma's mom and taller than the Empire State Building just begging to be read. To top it off, you probably add several books to said pile every week, yet somehow find yourself in a reading slump with nothing to read. Uh Uh-huh, I see you. In an attempt to tackle my never-ending pile of books, I decided to start a podcast with hopes of making some sort of dent in said pile, and maybe help inspire your next read. I'm Odell. Welcome to Just Read It Already. Hello, my friends. Hope your day is off to a good start. I'm sitting here sipping on some coconut and pineapple-flavored sparkling water on this fine Saturday afternoon, or Saturday when I'm recording this anyway. I don't know about you, but I'm ready to talk about some books today. On this episode, I will have reviews of Stephen Rowley's The Gunkle, Ren Stefano's How I'll Kill You, and Colleen Oakley's The Mostly True Story of Tanner and Louise. But first, we need to check out what's new this week. Now, I have an extra long list of new releases this week because I will be covering both this week and next week because I won't have an episode that drops on Memorial Day. Here's what I have on my list for this week. First up is The Senator's Wife by Liz Constantine. A DC philanthropist suspects that her seemingly perfect employee is secretly plotting to steal her husband, her reputation, even her life, in this seductive novel of psychological suspense. Next is The Late Americans by Brandon Taylor. In the shared and private spaces of Iowa City, a loose circle of lovers and friends encounter, confront, and provoke one another in a volatile year of self-discovery. As each prepares for an uncertain future, the group heads to a cabin to bid goodbye to their former lives, a moment of reckoning that leaves each of them irrevocably altered. Next is Identity by Nora Roberts, a new thriller about one man's ice-cold malice and one woman's fight to reclaim her life. Then we have Bad Summer People by Emma Rosenblum, a whip-smart, propulsive debut about infidelity, backstabbing, and murderous intrigue set against an exclusive summer haven on Fire Island. We also have Planes, Trains, and All the Feels by Livy Hart. Fans of Christina Lauren and Tessa Bailey will adore this witty and unforgettable rom-com about skyways, highways, and all the perfectly wrong ways to fall in love. We also have Someone Else's Bucket List by Amy T. Matthews. This is a binge-worthy, bittersweet, sisterly P.S. I Love You for the digital age. Someone Else's Bucket List follows shy Jody Boyd after the untimely death of her outgoing, hugely successful Instagram influencer sister, Bree, and Bree's last wish, that Jody complete her bucket list. Instructed by a series of videos left by Bree, Jody takes on the terrifying challenge as the world watches. That sounds cute. We also have The Chateau by Jacqueline Goldis. A dream girl's trip to a luxurious French chateau devolves into a deadly nightmare of secrets and murder in this stylish, twisty thriller. Then we have Summer Stage by Meg Mitchell-Moore. A spirited summer page-turner following a family of actors grappling with fame, scandal, and ambition. That's all I have for this week. Then next week we have Witch King by Martha Wells, a story of power and friendship, of trust and betrayal, and of the families we choose. Then we have Cherish by Tracy Wolfe. This is book six in the Crave series. The vampire court has no king, 
the dragon court has no heart, and the gargoyle court has me, a teenager in way over her head, and it's the worst possible timing because a threat is brewing just as the circle is collapsing. Then we have Once More with Feeling by Alyssa Sussman. A former pop star finds herself back in the spotlight, along with an old flame from her past, in this friends-to-lovers meets enemies-to-lovers romance. Then we have The Wishing Game by Meg Schaefer. Years ago, a reclusive, mega-best-selling children's author quit writing under mysterious circumstances. Suddenly, he resurfaces with a brand new book and a one-of-a-kind competition, offering a prize that will change the winner's life in this absorbing and whimsical novel. Next is The New Mother by Nora Murphy, a relatable and nerve-wracking, sympathetic and bone-chilling story, a fresh new twist on motherhood and murder in suburbia. Isolated, lonely, tired. It's hard being the new mother. Sometimes it's murder. We also have Drowning by T.J. Newman. This is an edge-of-your-seat thriller about a commercial jetliner that crashes into the ocean and sinks to the bottom with passengers trapped inside and the extraordinary rescue operation to save them. My worst nightmare, let me tell you. I did read Falling last year by T.J. Newman. It was another book about something going down on an airplane. This time it was the pilot was alerted that his family was being held hostage and they were going to be killed unless he crashed the plane. Definitely intense, especially if you like the TV show 24. That was fun. Next, we have Graceland by Nancy... Oh my God, I'm going to butcher this one. Crochier, C-R-O-C-H-I-E-R-E. People-pleasing Hope Robinson can't seem to please anyone lately. Not her slogan-spewing boss, not her pink-haired teenage daughter, and especially not her mother, the flamboyant soap star Olivia Grant. Olivia loves Elvis more than Jesus, and now that she's on oxygen, she insists Hope take her on a final trip to Graceland. Then we have Ink Blood Sister Scribe by Emma Tors. In the spellbinding debut novel, two estranged half-sisters tasked with guarding their family's library of magical books must work together to unravel a deadly secret at the heart of their collection, a tale of familial loyalty and betrayal, and the pursuit of magic and power. We also have Social Engagement by Avery Carpenter Forey, a bitingly sharp and darkly humorous debut novel exploring millennial wedding culture, class, and relationships, all filtered through the ever-present lens of social media. Then we have The Second Ending by Michelle Hoffman, a former prodigy who refuses to believe her best years are behind her and a young virtuoso searching for his passion both get an unlikely shot at their dreams in this sparkling debut about second chances, unexpected joys, and the miraculous power of music. We also have The Celebrants by Stephen Rowley, a big chill for our times, celebrating decades-long friendships and promises especially to ourselves, by the best-selling and beloved author of The Gunkle, which I will be reviewing today. We also have The Museum of Ordinary People by Mike Gale. In this pure, unadulterated, feel-good, and warm-hearted novel, an old set of encyclopedias leads a young woman to a curious museum and one profoundly moving lesson, that every life is an extraordinary life. And lastly is Beware the Woman by Megan Abbott an eerie and prescient novel about a family outing that takes a terrifying turn. I've read some of Megan Abbott's books before. They're really good. All right, that concludes my list. This week, I pre-ordered Someone Else's Bucket List by Amy T. Matthews. And then next week, I have The Celebrants by Stephen Rowley, The Wishing Game by Meg Schaefer, and Drowning by T.J. Newman on my pre-order list. I am interested in Graceland by Nancy... Not even going to try to say that last name again. The Museum of Ordinary People by Mike Gale and Beware the Woman by Megan Abbott. 
Uh, this week I purchased The Loneliest Girl in the Universe by Lauren James, The Girl Who Lied by Sue Fortin, The Magpie Lord by KJ Charles, The One by John Mars, Pines by Blake Crouch, and How It Feels to Float by Helena Fox. There were lots of good deals on BookBub this week. Then to my watch list, I added The Sky Blues by Robbie Crouch, When We Were Magic by Sarah Galley, The Whisper Man by Alex North, and The Last Time I Lied by Riley Sager. Let's start with the reviews. First, I'll be chatting about the adorable book titled The Gunkle by Stephen Rowley. This book was first published on May 25th, 2021 by G.P. Putnam's Sons and was a Goodreads Choice Award nominee for Best Fiction that same year. The synopsis reads, Patrick, or Gay Uncle Patrick, Gup for short, has always loved his niece Maisie and nephew Grant. That is, he loves spending time with them when they come out to Palm Springs for week-long visits or when he heads home to Connecticut for the holidays. But in terms of caretaking and relating to two children, no matter how adorable, Patrick is honestly a bit out of his league. So when tragedy strikes and Maisie and Grant lose their mother, and Patrick's brother has a health crisis of his own, Patrick finds himself suddenly taking on the role of primary guardian. Despite having a set of gunkle rules ready to go, Patrick has no idea what to expect, having spent years barely holding on after the loss of his great love, a somewhat stalled career, and a lifestyle not so suited to a six and a nine-year-old, quickly realizing that parenting, even if temporary, isn't solved with treats and jokes, Patrick's eyes are open to a new sense of responsibility and the realization that sometimes even being larger than life means you're unfailingly human. This book was really sweet. I went into it expecting something light and fluffy, which on one level I guess it kind of was, but it was also pretty emotional. Gay Uncle Patrick, or Gup, as his niece and nephew refer to him, is somewhat of a recluse. For years, he was a star on a popular TV sitcom known as The People Upstairs, which to me seemed it would be kind of like Friends. And Patrick's character had this series catchphrase, kind of like Joey's How You Doing? Four years after the series went off air, Patrick lives alone in Palm Springs. He lost the love of his life in an automobile accident and has stopped acting. When his best friend Sarah, who also happened to be married to Patrick's brother, dies after a battle with cancer, Patrick's brother admits that the stress of Sarah's illness turned him into a pill popper and he needs to go to rehab. The place he's chosen is in California, far from his home in Connecticut, but near Patrick. And because of this, he would like Patrick to care for his two children, Patrick's niece and nephew, nine-year-old Maisie, and six-year-old Grant. Patrick adores his niece and nephew, but he in no way feels like he could ever be responsible for two children 24 hours a day for three months straight. I completely understand this. I don't have kids of my own, nor have I ever wanted them. I'm fine with kids, I know. I have two goddaughters, several nieces and nephews, cousins. Hanging with them for an hour or two while their parents went out was always fun. But there is no way in hell that I would want to be responsible for them 24-7 for even a couple of days, let alone three months. Just couldn't do it. He finds every excuse not to, but his brother insists, and when his cold older sister offers to take the kids instead, insinuating that Patrick wouldn't be able to handle it, he decides he's going to prove her wrong and whisks Maisie and Grant off to California. Patrick is definitely in over his head. His daily routine doesn't at all match what Maisie and Grant are used to, but as time goes on and Patrick lays down his gunkle rules, the three eventually find their rhythm. 
As the days pass, Patrick is able to help the kids deal with their grief, and he too is able to deal with not only the loss of his best friend, but also the grief he still carries with him over the loss of his partner. Other notable elements of the book include the thruple next door known as Jed, that's John, Eduardo, and Dwayne. There's a remote control bidet that endlessly entertains the kids, Patrick trying to find the perfect tooth fairy gift for Grant, and there's a fabulous Christmas party in July. We're also presented with several Gunkel rules. One that made me laugh out loud was Gunkel rule number five. If a gay man hands you his phone, look only at what he's showing you. If it's a photo, don't swipe. And for God's sake, don't open any unfamiliar apps. <laughs> so true. My other favorite Gunkel rule was Gunkel rule number seven. In this house, we wear what we want. It doesn't matter if it's for boys or girls. Anything goes, anything you want, so long as it doesn't have mean words printed on it and it's not making fun of anyone else. We don't worry about what others think. Love it. Every one of the characters in the book, even those we only see a few times, are fully fleshed out. I fully related to Patrick. I mean, I've never been on TV or famous in any way, shape, or form. But his relationship with his family, and even with himself, was so relatable. In chapter 3 of the book, he's reflecting on his relationship with his family when he runs into his sister at Sarah's funeral. And his sister says to him, It's fun to see you back in Connecticut. I thought you were done with us. To which Patrick replies, Planes fly west, you know. The passage continues with, It was an old argument. When Patrick moved to Los Angeles, he flew home regularly for years, every six months or so, until he stopped. It was a show. It was a schedule. Everyone assumed fame had changed him, and to some extent, it had. It gave him the confidence to call out hypocrisy when he saw it. He came home. No one ever came to see him. After a while, he began to wonder, what was the point? That 100% sums up my life. I lived in Houston for 17 years, and my parents didn't once come down to visit me. I moved back to Oregon eight years ago, but no one in my family has bothered to drive up to visit me. But if I so much as go on a vacation to anywhere but Idaho to visit them, I'm the worst person in the world. It's exhausting. The only element in the book that I found lacking was the character of Emery. He is a young actor that Patrick has a fling with. He didn't really further the plot, nor did he add much to the story, and I felt they could have cut him and the story would have been totally fine. On the other hand, it wasn't enough to ruin anything. The ending of the book is bittersweet, as one would expect, but it ended the way the book needed to. It's a great look at struggles of single gay men, of grief, and of healing. I enjoyed it very much, and I gave it a solid 4 out of 5 stars on Goodreads. We're going to take a quick break, and I'll be right back. Next, I'm going to chat about Ren Stefano's How I'll Kill You. This book was first published on March 21st, 2023 by Berkeley, and the synopsis reads, Make him want you. Make him love you. Make him dead. Sissy has an interesting family. Always the careful one, always the cautious one, she has handled the cleanup while her serial killer sisters have carved a path of carnage across the U.S., now, as they arrive in the Arizona heat, Sissy must step up and embrace the family pastime of making a man fall in love and then murdering him. Her first target? A young widower named Edison, and their mutual attraction is instant. While their relationship progresses, and most couples would be thinking about picking out china patterns and moving in together, 
Sissy's family is reminding her to think about picking out burial sites and moving on. But then something happens that Sissy never anticipated. She begins to feel protective of Edison. And then, before she can help it, she's fallen in love. But the clock is ticking, and her sisters are growing restless. It becomes clear that the gravesite she chooses will hide a body no matter what happens. But if she betrays her family, will it be hers? I had such high hopes for this one. So high that I put off reading this book because I wanted to read it at a time when I had nothing else going on and I could just settle in and read all day without interruption. Unfortunately, this one didn't live up to the excitement that I built up, and it makes me sad to say that. I really don't like giving negative reviews. I know how much of an author goes into their work and how meaningful it is to them, but this book just wasn't for me. I read the Chemical Garden trilogy by this author, writing as Lauren Stefano, several years ago. It's a young adult series, and I really love the story and writing style. Stefano is definitely a talented writer. Unfortunately, I just couldn't fully buy into the premise of this one, and the ending had me wondering what the hell was wrong with one of the characters. In order for me to adequately explain the reasoning behind my low rating of this book, I'm going to have to spoil some of it. So if you intend to read the book, which I encourage if you're into thrillers, mysteries, definitely check this one out. Books are subjective. You may love this one. But if you want to go in blind, you should definitely use the chapters to skip ahead to the next review. So the book begins with Sissy, one of the triplets, sitting in a diner. One of her other sisters speaks to her through an earpiece and they're trying to pick someone out. We soon discover they're looking for a victim. As the synopsis tells us, Sissy and her sisters, Iris and Moody, they're not their real names, are serial killers and they hunt men, they make them fall in love with them, and then they murder them. They typically spend a few months with the guy, they make him really fall for them, and then they knock him off. One sister prefers strangling them, while the other prefers a very bloody death. Up until now, Sissy has acted as a sort of cleaner. Once the dude is dead, Sissy's called in. She's listened to a lot of true crime podcasts, she's watched true crime programs, so she knows how to thoroughly clean up a crime scene. The body is disposed of, and the sisters move on to a new town with new identities and search for their next victim. Up until this point, Sissy has not killed anyone. Her sisters insist it's now her turn, so they've traveled to Arizona. Sissy picked out a burial spot for the body. It's in a new development where a lot of construction is happening. The only thing missing is a victim. But then Sissy spots a hot guy with no wedding ring walk into the diner and immediately puts a target on his back. She poses as Jade Johnson, a woman who recently moved to town to get her dead mother's affairs in order. And since it's a small town, she assumes everyone attends this certain church, and she'll more than likely see her intended victim there. And that she does. And before long, she learns his name is Edison. He's a widower. The love of his life was killed by a drunk driver, which makes him emotionally vulnerable and ripe for the picking. Sissy, acting as Jade, sinks in her claws and it's not long before she has Edison eating out of the palm of her hand. But soon she finds herself unexpectedly smitten with him, despite reminding herself that she's going to kill him and move on. As the weeks and then months go by, Sissy gets Edison right where she wants him, but her sisters are afraid she's grown too fond of her victim and may not go through with it. Sissy has also grown close to a neighbor who is a victim of domestic abuse, and the more Sissy gets emotionally involved with these people, her sisters are afraid it's less likely that she'll finish the job, so they intervene, and things get even more deadly. 
As I said earlier, on the surface, this all sounds great, but there were just too many areas where I couldn't suspend my disbelief enough to make me enjoy the book as a whole. First of all, I used to co-host a true crime podcast. Now, this by no means makes me a forensic expert, but I have picked up a few things, and the most important is they are always going to suspect the wife or girlfriend or lover, whatever you are, first. No matter how many people say, uh, she could never have done it, she loved him too much, she was far too sweet, yeah, it doesn't matter. I also feel like spending six plus months with him to make it look like you really love him does nothing more than make you even more of a suspect. She would have had better luck had she picked him up at the diner, driven to a motel, killed him, and then was on her way. She stuck around far too long, far too many people got involved, there were way too many in town who knew her, fake name or not. I also found it strange that the town was so small that everyone went to the same church, yet no one asked to see, aka Jade, who her mother was. If she was in a town taking care of her dead mother's affairs in a small town, I feel like someone's bound to ask, well, who was your mom? Why didn't I know her? Another thing that bugged me about halfway through the novel were the elaborate murder scenarios that Sissy would concoct in her head when she realized she was falling for Edison. On one hand, it did seem as though she was trying to put herself back in the game. She would imagine a scenario, nope, I've got to do this. This is how I'm going to do it. But then after a while, it got really tired. I think my biggest problem with the book was the ending. Yes, so major spoiler alert ahead. So Sissy's sisters try to intervene. They end up getting caught. One of them dies in the process. The other takes the fall for everything. And Sissy's free to go. In the process... Edison learns that Sissy intended to murder him, yet agrees to meet her after all is said and done. She fully confesses to him what was going on, but he decides to give her another chance. He even asks her to show him where she planned to bury him. (laughs) What the fuck? Honestly, if the author had flipped everything on its head and had Sissy murder him anyway and then drive off into the sunset to start a new life, I would have flipped my rating around and been 100% on board. I would have forgiven the things that bothered me earlier, but as it stands, Edison is just a dumbass. He decided that he was 100% okay with Sissy wanting to murder him at one point in time, and he's going to be with her. I have to wonder about Edison's mental health and his feelings of self-worth. Need to get that check, buddy. Despite an interesting premise and some promise, a few plot holes and an awful ending left me very underwhelmed. The best I could do was give this one two stars on Goodreads. We'll close out with the mostly true story of Tanner and Louise by Colleen Oakley. This book was first published on March 28, 2023 by Berkeley, and the synopsis reads, 21-year-old Tanner Quimby needs a place to live, preferably one where she can continue sitting around in sweatpants and playing video games 19 hours a day. Since she has no credit or money to speak of, Her options are limited, so when an opportunity to work as a live-in caregiver for an elderly woman falls into her lap, she takes it. One slip on the rug. That's all it took for Louise Wilt's daughter to demand that Louise have a full-time nanny living with her. Never mind that she can still walk fine, finish her daily crossword puzzle, and pour her two fingers of vodka she drinks every afternoon. Bottom line, Louise wants a caretaker even less than Tanner wants to be one. The two start off their living arrangement happily ignoring each other until Tanner starts to notice things. Weird things. Like, why does Louise keep her garden shed locked up tighter than a prison? 
And why is the local news fixated on the suspect of one of the biggest jewelry heists in American history, who looks eerily like Louise? And why does Louise suddenly appear in a room with a pack bag at 1am, insisting that they leave town immediately? Thus begins the story of a not-to-be-underestimated elderly woman and an aimless young woman who, if they can outrun the mistakes of their past, might just have the greatest adventure of their lives. This book was a ton of fun, and while it didn't completely blow me away, it was a quick and easy read, and I really enjoyed it. The book focuses on Tanner Quimby, a 21-year-old who can barely manage to peel herself off the couch and away from her video games long enough to be a contributing member of the household. Now, Tanner hasn't always been this way. At one point in time, she was a star soccer player, but during her junior year of college, she attended a party at a frat house where the deck she was standing on collapsed. This caused her to break her leg pretty severely, and it ended her college career, and along with it, her full-ride scholarship. She wants nothing more than to go back to school and finish her degree, but she can't quit feeling sorry for herself long enough to do something about it. Eventually, her parents get fed up with her and tell her she has to get a job and move out. They find her the perfect solution. One of Tanner's mother's friends needs help. Her mother, Louise, recently had a nasty fall and broke her hip and needs a live-in caretaker. Tanner is not at all skilled enough to be a nurse, but they really just want someone around to watch Louise in case she should fall again, as well as someone who can drive her to and from her physical therapy appointments. Easy peasy. To say that 21-year-old Tanner and 84-year-old Louise Wilt have nothing in common is an understatement. Louise especially doesn't understand Tanner at all. She thinks she's lazy, she thinks she's uninteresting, and needs to take better care of her appearance. Tanner isn't sure she'll be able to do this long-term, but a sexy handyman of Louise's catches her attention and makes her decide that maybe she should at least shower daily and change her clothes if this dude, dude's name is August, is going to be making appearances now and then. But then one day, while watching the news, Tanner sees a news segment about the FBI closing in on a decades-old jewel heist. After all these years, agents believe that a woman may be behind it, and the age-progressed photo of the alleged perp looks a hell of a lot like Louise. The next night, Tanner hears police sirens in the distance, and Louise wakes her up and tells her she needs to pack a bag immediately, and they need to go. Tanner hesitates at first, but then on a whim decides what the hell, and she leaves with Louise, off to God knows where. Louise tells her they have to drive to California to help her friend George because they're in trouble. Naturally, Tanner believes George must have been Louise's accomplice in the jewel heist, and part of her wonders if she shouldn't just get out of the car and leave Mrs. Wilt to her alleged criminal ways without her. But she goes anyway. And despite the questionable intention of the road trip, both Tanner and Louise end up developing a beautiful friendship. The trip is fraught with mishaps, misunderstandings, and mistaken identities, but it's also filled with a lot of heart and a lot of learning experiences. Both of our characters begin to open up to one another and, despite the extreme age difference, begin to care for and understand each other. One especially touching passage happens in chapter 22, where Tanner makes a confession to Louise. The passage reads, Without soccer, who was she? But that wasn't all she was scared of, or even the biggest thing. She took a deep breath and then said in an even smaller voice, I think I'm broken. Like, I don't even know how to be a person anymore. How to be anything. Now rest assured, by the end of the book, we find out why Louise needed to get to George, what Louise and George had done in their past, and who really stole the jewels. Overall, this was an enjoyable read. I gave it four out of five stars on Goodreads. 
that wraps up this week's episode. Don't forget there will be no new episode next week. So enjoy your Memorial Day. And if you got some extra time, you want a new podcast, go check out Here's Drinking With You Kid, hosted by Aaron Stallings and Conrad Modez. They cover the AFI's Top 100 movie list, and each week they review one of the movies from that list. And on Wednesdays, Aaron and I host Back Where We Belong. It's a total nostalgia podcast for those of you born in the 80s or 90s, or those of you with interests in pop culture from the 80s or 90s. I'll be back on June 5th with reviews of Dirty Laundry by Disha Bose, Romantic Comedy by Curtis Sittenfeld, and The Lonely Hearts Book Club by Lucy Gilmore. Have a great week. <laughs>